It was the tweet heard around the first-gen world. In April of 2020, a PhD student had shared on Twitter that her grant application had been rejected. Why? Apparently, her reviewer did not believe that she was capable of carrying out her study because of her GPA and her first-generation status. The tweet ends with, I am livid. Livid is in all caps. Soon after, professors, doctors, and other PhD students from around the country chimed in on Twitter, many of them first-generation themselves. The tweet was replied, retweeted, and liked thousands of times as it's made its rounds. It struck a chord. A chord that the first-gen community is all too familiar with, and one that highlights the experience many first-generation graduate students have in academia. A constant struggle to try to prove that we are more than capable, that we too bring great ideas, and that more importantly, we belong. Bienvenidos. Huanying. Ahlan Welcome to another episode of My PhD and Me, The Third Degree. My name is Harrison Chicas. I'm a first-generation PhD student studying organizational behavior at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In today's episode, you'll hear from me and three other first-generation PAC students in these three acts as we talk through our own first-gen experience. While we find discourse and research around first-generation college undergraduate students is more accessible, people do not talk as much about first-generation graduate student experience. We are happy to be able to create and share this space with you today. This is Chris Lane. Yeah, my name is Chris Lane. I'm a rising second year student, a PhD student in the Human Movement Science program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I actually just graduated last year from the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at UNC. So I decided to spend a couple more years at UNC and I've really enjoyed my time so far. Chris is one of the smartest people I know, but he's also one of the most down to earth people. <laughs> I got a chance to meet Chris years ago, and it was awesome to reconnect and talk about our identity as first gen. <laughs> I don't know. It's been it's been so cool to uh, be able to grow with you as a scholar and just uh, reconnect after so many years. But um, um, I think we're we're both sort of experience a very or having a very similar experience as graduate students, um, particularly because we're both first generation, right? And so I wanted to ask. What does first generation mean to you? What does a first generation student uh, mean to you? Yeah, I think people have many, maybe definitions of what a first generation student is. But um, to me, I would say that a first generation student is someone whose um, parents did not graduate from a, a academic program. So if it's undergraduate, a first generation undergraduate student, their parents did not graduate from a four year undergraduate college. Or if, there's, if it's a first-generation graduate student, their parents did not graduate from a graduate-level um, program or a PhD program. So, yeah, that's what first-generation means to me. And I would be actually both. Um, my parents did not graduate from a four-year undergraduate or graduate-level program. So, and, and neither my parents. And they actually did not attend one as well. Wow. Yeah, and, and it goes back to the idea of, like, uh, sometimes... 
Like uh, my parents, when I think about my parents, they didn't necessarily have the opportunity to go to a four-year institution or a graduate program. And so in a way, we're both um, kind of the Lewis and Clarks <laughs> of our family and our, our pioneers in the sense of coming into an academic world, whether that be coming into college for the first as a first generation or where we are now as PhD students coming into our program. Um, but let's backtrack a bit because uh, I know we started touching about uh, upon our, our families, right? And especially our parents and their educational background. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your your upbringing, your background as an individual. Yeah, so um, I was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, it has a big military base next to it. Yeah. Um, my dad was in the Army for about 20 years. Mm. Um, yeah, he was born in Kansas City. But yeah, so I am an Army grad, but I was pretty lucky growing up. I was able to stay in Fayetteville for all of my life, so I didn't have to move like a lot of other Army brats tend to. Um, but more about my background, I'm a biracial person, so I'm half Black and half Asian, or as I like to call myself, blazing. <laughs> I, I don't think there's too many of us around, but I'm starting to be more blazing. I, I think our population might be growing slowly or surely. Uh, my mom... <laughs> was born in uh, South Korea. She was born in Seoul, South Korea, and moved to the United States when she was pretty young. Um, I've always been very close with my family, so my family has always been very loving and caring towards me. Um, I consider myself probably from a low SES kind of background or socioeconomic status background than a lot of graduate students, but I've always had food on the table and a good roof over my head. So mm-hmm. I won't complain about my upbringing and mm-hmm. I wouldn't really uh, trade it for anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's very interesting. You come from a very uh, uh, unique background in the sense that, you know, one of your parents, uh, I'm assuming, was born and raised here in the United States. Yeah. And the the other parent was, is from South Korea. Um, so this biracial identity and how to navigate both worlds. I'm curious to get your take as, as you said, you were very close to your family. Like, how do you navigate that space? Yeah, it is always a very interesting thing and something, I mean, I think about my identity a lot. And a lot of times I don't always have a true answer for even my identity since it's, it gets kind of unique to a lot of people. But um, I'm, my parents are, of course, um, they're very close with each other and they do have different personalities anyway. Mm-hmm. And since my mom was born in South Korea and English is a second language to her, she isn't always as comfortable speaking as much English. Mm. So I actually wish I picked up more Korean from her. <laughs> I actually don't know very much Korean. <laughs> so, yeah, in a way, I do kind of have to navigate a little bit differently in some of the ways I explain things to my parents and just explaining what my goals are and what I'm doing in school. So sometimes they're not able to help me as much with my schoolwork. So in some ways, I kind of had to figure things out more on my own. But I think that probably has helped me out too in a way of being able to go through that work and kind of create that my own work ethic towards that. Yeah, and kind of grow up quick, right? In the sense that you have to kind of raise up to the occasion because no one else is there to save you or to help you or to be there to na- help you navigate that space. But but Chris, even before then, right, when did you first realize that you were a first gen? Like, when did that come up? Yeah, really, uh, I think probably the first time it came up was when I first started applying to college when I was a high schooler. And I think the college, some of the, some of the college applications kind of noted um, or asked 
if you were the first to in your family to go to college. But even then, I didn't quite understand what that really meant. And I think, think it was more of when I first went to my undergraduate program, and that was at Wake Forest University when I first went there. So at uh, Wake Forest, there's a first-generation um, scholarship program called the Magnolia Scholars, and that was just a great support group. So there were other students who were first-gen, there were older students, there were staff members that were also first-gen, and they just gave us some really great advice moving forward. Yeah. So I didn't know that there were a lot of professors that were first-generation college students and made it kind of all the way up to the academic top. So yeah. yeah that they just became role models for me. Mm. And and uh, in, in that sense, as they became role models, how did become being a first generation influence your research and what, what you're doing now? It kind of interest in diversity in general, um, just because of my racial background and in my first generation background, I'll consider both of those as very important parts to my identity. So I guess to give maybe an overview of my research in general, I'm interested in studying chronic pain. And then with my healthcare background as graduating from a physical therapy program, I'm interested to see how we can help improve people's pain and improve people's function of of, uh, patients who have chronic pain. And in particular, I'm interested in knee osteoarthritis. But kind of in addition to that, I'm also interested to see how people from different backgrounds, so from different races or sexes or genders, how they may respond to treatments differently. So I think just being first generation, I kind of understand that not everyone goes through life the same way. So I really want to see how different people may respond to interventions differently or may have different risk factors for getting a disease or condition. And then also with that, um, education and socioeconomic status, I think are other good areas to research as well to see if there are differences. So, of course, education, I think, can help people out a lot in healthcare because the health world is just so complicated, just navigating through the health system. So not having the financial or educational resources to understand what it's like to book an appointment or see the doctor and understand what they're actually telling you. I want to be able to help facilitate the communication between healthcare providers and patients. Hmm. So uh, I was lucky enough to see one of your videos, Chris, and, uh, you know, one, one of the videos here at UNC's um, uh, Allied Health Department, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, and you had mentioned how uh, one, of the, one of your motivations is to uh, be able to uh, be uh, a therapist and uh, a healthcare provider that looks and is able to connect with people who may look like you um, and may also be yearning for a connection of it from a doctor that, that looks like them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was really one of my biggest motivations of wanting to become a physical therapist. So I had an injury myself, and that's when I first became a patient myself. But kind of just seeing the therapy background, I really loved it how physical therapists have so much time with patients, time to connect with patients, to have a good discussion, not just about what the health condition is, but even about just life in general. So I really think it does, being a physical therapist or pretty much any other healthcare provider, it's not just about treating the condition, but it's really about understanding the person as a whole. So one thing I kind of noticed in the physical therapy world is that a lot of physical therapists don't always look like their patients. 
Some of them have different racial backgrounds, or they may have even different upbringings, may have different religions. So I really think that a healthcare provider should, at least in general, the healthcare workforce should reflect the patients that they serve. So rather you have the same racial identity or at least understand where someone's coming from, I think that's very important because really having that connection can help build trust. And that trust is what can really help get a patient better. A patient that trusts the provider will probably be more likely to kind of follow the instructions that the provider gives. So, I mean, that's just one thing I want to be able to improve as I try to work as a healthcare provider and as I become a researcher and become and go into academics, I just want to be able to help inspire more people from underrepresented backgrounds to pursue these professions. We run, we fall, we fail, we rise, we try again, we win, and we run again. But that doesn't mean that all challenges are monolithic. Far from it. As you will hear today, each of us first-gen has experienced similar yet different challenges in school and at home. I am joined today by Stephen Huan and Berju Berserk. Stephen is a first-generation Taiwanese-American immigrant with research interests in mobile-delivered HIV care and prevention intervention for queer youth of color. He is a doctoral student in the Department of Health Behavior at the Gillen School of Public Health here at UNC. Berju, originally from Istanbul, is also at the Gillen School of Global Public Health. She is pursuing her PhD in health policy and management. Berju is also a Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow, and I'm glad we get to have her and Stephen for this engaging discussion. Enjoy. One of my earliest challenges that I faced as a first-gen student was just simply like not knowing how to navigate the system, not knowing where research is, not knowing what the relationship with faculty looks like, or not knowing the publishing game at all. Um, so there was a steep learning curve for me in the early days of graduate school. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure many graduate students have some form of learning curve, but it definitely felt a bit steeper for me when I compare myself to students who have family members um, or very close relatives who uh, have graduate degrees or PhDs of sorts. And I'm wondering if any of you have also faced a similar experience of like not knowing what you don't know and ultimately how that made you feel in your graduate career. I think I relate to that. I think a common thing that I've often thought about is how do you know what you don't know, right? And so a part of my first-generation experience is also just, you know, having parents that didn't uh, go to school in the United States and didn't do college. Um, There were a lot of things that I tried to navigate on my own, and I've been fortunate to find, you know, lucky mentors and other people who were helpful. Um, But part of my defining experience is also after my second year of undergrad, I took a lot of time off. So basically, I left school for about three years and then I went to go work in a restaurant because it's kind of um, what I knew how to do. And so part of that experience really taught me about like who I was and what I wanted to do. And when I came back to school, I was also able to reconnect with my mentor. Um, she emailed me like twice yesterday, just kind of (laughs) with resources and checking in, um, just in the current climate. 
And so that's something that I've really treasured. And she also is a an immigrant who is um she's Persian. Uh and so she and I kind of share this like common immigrant background, but also as people of color and trying to navigate this academic space. So that's been really a valuable perspective. Yeah, I, I relate to that as well. Um in that you know, people talk about the hidden curriculum and I think all of us uh uncover uncover that hidden curriculum at different points of our kind of educational careers. And for me, it really probably happened towards the end of college. Um, and so, you know, a lot of things weren't in place that I would have wanted to be in place to, to be competitive for graduate school. Um, the other things that I struggled with, um, kind of had to do with, I guess, what it meant to, to be, to pursue a graduate education, both in terms of the impact that I wanted to have on, on kind of communities that, that share similar threads to my own narrative, immigrant communities, vulnerable, uh, communities, who may not have access to the kind of educational or social capital that non-immigrant communities have here, for example. And so it, it felt like I knew the importance of seeking a graduate education, both for me and my family, and also for the potential impact that I could have. But it also felt like I was fully stepping into a, a, a privilege or a facet of like ivory tower life that, um, you know, carries with it a lot of, a lot of different connotations that I, I may not be okay with. Um, and so, you know, it's a privilege to do research. It's a privilege to, to even, even if our stipends are measly, get paid to think deeply and, and poke holes and methods and, um, you know, wax poetic about frameworks and theories that, that guide our research questions. And I, I had trouble with that, um, because I know that the world needs, um, faster turnaround on, on change. Um, so I, I think it was, a it was a weird way. My, the intersectionality of my identities kind of, um, manifested, you know, being a woman, uh, being an immigrant, uh, being a Muslim in, in a society that, uh, carries with it a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment at the moment. Um, it, yeah, there, there were, there were extra considerations, psychological and, and like existential that I think I had to navigate through. I think you bring up a, a really good point, Virginia, this idea of like finding one's place, um, between this, like, two very distinct homes, if you will. Um, so last week, Chris and I talked about how family, you know, keeps us grounded, serves as a recharger and, and motivates us. Um, but there's also challenges that we face in being in this middle ground. One of those challenges is like uh, communicating what exactly we do with our families. Um, and so have you experienced anything of that sort of just like, um, and the difficulties in communicating what research is and academia is to them. Yeah, I've definitely struggled with that. Um, and I, I can't say that I've like figured out the way, but I, I don't think 
you know, as with many parents whose, whose children seek higher education opportunities or, you know, graduate education, especially in a doctoral program, I don't think my parents fully understand what it is I do eight to five or a lot of times eight to midnight and then 3am to 5am. Um, and I, you know, I think there's just, it's, it's a hard mountain to like mount, um, and navigate. I will say I, uh, particularly some of my work has focused on some more stigmatized issues, um, that are a bit harder to, to talk about. I work, um, in health policy and in particular, a lot of my research has centered on reproductive health, reproductive health policy, um, things like uh, youth access to contraception and abortion quality, and um, a lot of those things entail, you know, like young people having sex. And it's not something we um, talk about at the dinner table. Um, and at this point, I've gotten enough kind of public recognition of my work that they know, like, generally, that's what I do. And, um, you know, it, it's just, it's kind of a smile and nod and don't talk about it kind of moment. And, and I think they, to their friends, are like, oh, she works in women's health, like pregnant people, which is not a lie. It's just incomplete. Um, it's uh, explicit. Um, I think underlying there's a respect for what I do, but there's definitely stigma and, and um, you know, I don't know what a full conversation about all the ins and outs of what I do would look like with my parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like, uh, you know, for me, one of the toughest part is just like explaining to my parents what research is, but then adding adding another layer on your end of just like stigmatized research is like times two because it's uh it's already tough explaining what research is, but then having to discuss something that's a bit more taboo, um, particularly in immigrant cultures, it might be even that much more difficult to explain. Right. And, and what's interesting is, uh, you know, I've in the last few years started to talk about like research topics that they can understand, like the Affordable Care Act and insurance coverage. And um, because my dad has insurance, um, suddenly he feels like his lived experience is equal, equal worth um, and and like relevance to the research that I'm doing. And so um, that's also interesting to navigate, you know, uh, you know. It's not, um, the things I work on are not so removed from our day-to-day experiences that they can't or they don't truly understand. Um, mm. It's just uh, the application of the lens looks a little bit different for first-gen students, I think. Yeah. And and Stephen, I mean, have you experienced something similar in the sense of like trying to communicate research to them and how has maybe your background influenced your research as well? Oh, of course. I think... You know, for me, I came here when I was seven and my family is from Taiwan. And so there, although I've, you know, English is my second language, but I've also, I think as children of immigrants, I think I've retained a lot of my mother tongue, my native tongue. And so there is a lot of kind of translating that I'm having to do on top of being, you know, explaining what is public health, right? Like my parents think it's sanitation and... (laughs) I don't know, um, but I work in HIV um, care and prevention, and specifically with LGBT populations, uh, with queer youth. Um, usually, it's with men who have sex with men. And from my parents' perspective, like they didn't grow up around 
people who were out and queer, right? Mm -hmm. Like Taiwan had a period of time that was under martial law until 1987, which is the year I was born. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of these kind of more progressive ideas didn't start to come in until then. And then by then I was, we were already in the States. And so explaining that extra like barrier of language as well as like content, I think has been a challenge Mm -hmm. as well as that stigma, right? Um, And so I think right now we're at an interesting point because Taiwan had a really successful response to COVID and there have been legislation that kind of recognizes public health as a piece of, like a a missing piece of the puzzle for um, health responses. And so I think my parents are starting to see the value of this degree, this thing that I'm doing. But I think similar to you, Birju, I don't think they understand from day to day they you know, what I'm doing. I think I've had multiple conversations where my dad still asks me about my grades and they don't really know like what the meaning of is and the kind of uh, papers that I'm writing and the manuscripts that I'm preparing and what all of that means. And so I think that's still a kind of a missing piece for them in terms of like their understanding for what I do in the academy. Mm-hmm. No, those are great points because I think as like first gen, um, you know, we're juggling many different fronts and trying to fit in into each one. And I think if uh, shifting it back to us, right, of like um, if we're trying to communicate with our families, how is it like trying to communicate with academia and fitting into this into this world? And um, what one of the um, you know articles that really stuck out for me when I was like first entering academia was this one titled uh, Academia Love Me Back by Tiffany Martinez. It really spoke to me because the author goes ahead and pleads with professors and the educational system as a whole to judge her based on the merit and not necessarily on the biases. Um, so she begins the article by listing all her credentials. She's a McNair Fellow. She's a Dean's List recipient. And then after the long list of accomplishments, she then writes, there are students who will be assumed capable without the need to list their credentials in the beginning of a reflective piece. And that particular line, that resonated with me because at times, you know, in academia, I felt like I didn't fit in, right? It felt like I needed to prove myself constantly that I was worth the seat that I was given. Like this opportunity almost came with an asterisk that it could be taken away from me at any at any time. Um, and I'm wondering for you two, if, if you've ever felt that way with with this opportunity of like being in academia of trying to fit in and trying to prove your worth uh, to academia to your faculty and to your cohort as a whole i yeah i mean man i i think there's there's multiple facets there right one of them is unless i talk about my experience i don't my english doesn't have an accent people don't know that i was an esl for three years you know, that English is my third language, like they have no idea. Um, so unless I out myself as a first gen student, I think I, uh, have learned pretty well how to navigate as if I'm not, but that doesn't mean that, um, I have not struggled with aspects of, um, my graduate education that required, that would have made easier had I not been the first one walking this path. Um, the other facet is that I, I am now used to being the first one to walk that path, right? For a lot of us first gen 
PhD students, a lot of us were first gen in other ways as well. I was the first woman in my family to go to a four-year university. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I was kind of the first one to, to get a job here uh, as, as being my age. And um, it's just, uh, you know, th- th- there's a resilience that comes with that. Um, but I think sometimes that resilience prevents us from owning how far we've traveled. And so I've definitely struggled with imposter syndrome of, of, of feeling like my experiences exist outside of myself. And, uh, like I'm, I'm almost telling a lie that, um, I've had to travel the, the distance I've traveled. Um, yeah. Well, I think it definitely just reflecting on that question. Um, I think for me, Asian Americans have typically been represented in higher education, but there's a problem of aggregation. So when you look at different subgroups of what we kind of call Asian, there's so many different groups that, you know, typically have um, poor representation, lower outcomes, especially in higher education. Um, But for me, as a Taiwanese person coming in here, um, Taiwanese immigrants tend to be more educated when they immigrate. Um, families tend to have more uh, professional backgrounds, and that really wasn't the case for me. And so coming in here and then kind of revealing that I'm an immigrant and kind of telling more of my uh, background to my people in my department, to faculty, I don't know if they really understand what it is uh, about my first-gen experience that's like a little bit different. Like I also was someone who took a lot of time off from school, had a lot of uh, struggles in my undergrad time. And so I don't know, I think understanding the merits of what we're able to do is important and seeing that merit, but also how do you kind of unravel more of the context, right? Like it's because we've walked so far, we've achieved so much and done things in a different route that other people might not have um, done that we were able to do these things. And so I don't know, I think I'm still kind of reflecting on that journey and what that means for me as an individual versus for me as a demographic. Yeah, that feeling of like, uh, when the journey uh, gets reduced to a statistic, I think is something that I struggle with as well. Um, of, Of feeling like, there's definitely this, like all eyes are on me and, um, I, I have to, I have to do well because, uh, I, I was the first one on this path, um, and other people walking down it rely on me. Like at what point is your journey reduced to a statistic? And at what point is your journey, your journey and something that is not captured in these lists of, of, uh, accomplishments or titles or credentials. Mm-hmm. And to add to that, because I think um, this idea of like there's other others who will follow, you know, at least for for my experience, that adds uh, almost a lo- another layer of pressure. Um, so like at times it's motivating, right? It's like I don't want to study, but then I'm just like, all right, well, if I study, hopefully I'll do better, and this will, you know, in in some weird weird indirect way, I'll help whoever comes next to maybe achieve something greater. Um, but at other times it feels overwhelming and it feels like, um, 
like I, I, I need to do this because like so many people depend on me and it, and it feels like it's an insurmountable pressure of just like constantly trying to not only prove to academia, but prove to oneself that like this, this journey that I'm on is like, is worth like that. I'm, that I'm making the best out of this journey. Cause I know this journey is, is not giving to everybody. And I'm one of the first and select few that get to be on this path. Um, and I want, I wanted to ask if, if anyone feels that type of pressure, um, almost as if, you know, at times it is motivating, but at other times it could be like, I just need to, I just need to step back and just let this like sit, you know? Indubitably, first-generation students face challenges in entering, pursuing, and completing a graduate degree. Yet despite the number of obstacles that may hinder our progress, we have many more things to be grateful for. I'm grateful that we get to be in a space where we can think about ideas and ideas matter and what we think about them and how we construct our understanding of the world has a real impact, but that impact is kind of delayed. Um, and I'm grateful to be kind of at the table where I can formulate and help construct that knowledge. Yeah, I'm very grateful of all the mentors I have during my journey. Like in um, undergrad, which was the first time I knew what being a first-generation student was and what that meant, having other first-gens who were older, um, there were older students at the time that could help mentor me, kind of talk about their personal experiences, um, how to navigate through school, and even now being in a PhD program too, just having other students there that I can talk to. Um, I really don't think I would be where I'm at without having the mentors. No, I agree. I've been such a benefactor of wonderful mentorship. I, I feel like the generosity of those mentors um, was like a protective factor as I navigated higher ed. I also... I'm. I'm keenly aware as I continue down this journey of how important early mentors were. Like I can point my finger at particular teachers in elementary school and middle school um, who uh, encouraged me to ask questions, who showed such passion and, and modeled such passion for their work that it inspired me to pursue a career where I also feel similarly passionate um, and so I've been very, very um, grateful for those networks of support inside and outside of academia. In this final act, Chris, Stephen, Berju, and myself share the things that helped us and are helping us navigate academia as first-generation students. Although not all things that work for us will work for all first-gens, we hope that those who are listening recognize the plight first-gens go through in graduate programs. And if you are a first generation yourself, we hope that this episode, and particularly this hack, reminds you that you, you are not alone. Maybe some first gens who are, are listening to this are going through it, are experiencing some, are probably doubting themselves. Um, what me Overall, what message do you have for first generation students who may be listening to this and considering grad school or in grad school, graduate school right now? I just, I mean, I, it's so hard, you know, not all feedback is created equal. So it's hard to give advice to people who have such varied and diverse backgrounds, probably. And 
um, are just coming from such different places. Um, first gen encapsulates just so much. I do think one of the things that I found really helpful um, is to adopt a language, at least with my uh, close mentors and my network of friends that does give a, that does nod to my history um, and to my journey, because I don't think that our kind of lived experience and in, in the professional kind of public facing academic arena lends itself to that. And um, that's been really nice. And there's just so many things that we have to balance, right? We have to balance um, imposter syndrome and how to navigate a system that wasn't built for us and um, the privilege of doing research. And also, uh, you know, some of us have this added feeling like we have to give back to the, to the communities that we came from. That's a lot. And in, in a lot of ways, we have um, o- overcome our own trauma and our own difficulties in getting to where we are. So I I think, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky that my close network of friends, we have destigmatized asking for mental health help. Um, and um, that I, I fully leverage the resources available at my school and I have when I needed them. Um, to, to make sense of the world and navigate when I, I was having trouble. Um, and I think, um, as much as we can destigmatize that for each other, uh, the world will, will follow suit. Um, you know, structural changes hopefully will follow cultural changes. Um, so I, um, I highly encourage, you know, uh, folks to, to seek out friends and mentors that can allow them to talk about some of these, some of these things explicitly, um, but also to, um, seek out the resources to help us make sense. Um, for example, I, you know, it took me a long time to, to understand that perfection is, um, one way that people cope with trauma. And I think, um, had I not, uh, done some of the work that I needed to, um, I, I never would have known that. And I never would have known the way to balance that, um, balance that aspect of, of my, you know, uh, of my experience. I, I wanted to qu- quickly add that, um, I think one thing that I, that has helped me in, in my journey, um, that may be of use to, um, first gens who are seeking a graduate program, who are, who are in a graduate program, um, is this sense of authenticity. And I think it's very hard when you're entering a space that um, is not necessarily inviting or welcoming um, for, for you. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that I've learned in my journey is that um, a- although my story may be different from the typical graduate student, um, it is my story and it allows me to see the world in a very different way and therefore allows me to see problems in a very different way. And I think in living in that light and being authentic to myself will then allow me to bring about different vantage points uh, to a problem. And then in speaking to other other folks about a particular problem, then we can get, you know, come to a, a better, hopefully a better solution. Um, but but I think the, the sense of being authentic allows for better problem solving, but also it allows, um, other folks to, uh, see, see you, see you for who you are. Um, I, I say that because, uh, in academia there, 
Uh, I'll figure out the statistics, but <laughs> there's a lack of diversity. Uh, but but and therefore, if you're able to bring your authentic self, you're also uh, humanizing your community. You're letting other people see you for who you truly are, in hopes that you know they see uh, they they may be their biases may be challenged in a, in a way. Um, and so, uh, I say I say all that to say that. Um, being authentic, being true to yourself and following your passion and your research, um, I think can go a long way as a first gen in academia. Yeah, I definitely agree to you guys. And I guess one of the big things for me and what helped me kind of get to this point, and in addition to having good mentors was, was kind of thinking about my identity a lot during this process and being very proud of who I am. So I'm being proud of that. I am a first generation college student. I, I am biracial, half black, half Asian that I have these experiences and in a way going through what I have been through, it has made me more unique in the process. So um, maybe I'm, I may not have the same privileges or resources as other students, but in a way I am still more unique and I can use that uniqueness as strength. And then for an, another thing too, I just um, usually think that what I am doing is, to really help my parents ultimately. So they did not have the experiences or the opportunities that I have right now. So I always use that as a motivating factor for me to get through um, school, for me to get through the PhD program that I'm doing something that my parents were not able to do. I think for me, I have some days where I wake up in the morning and I have, you know, things that I have to address, work that I have to do. And I just start thinking like, oh my God, I am a lazy, no good, not smart grad student. And I start kind of like spiraling in this like cycle of um, being an imposter. And and I kind of take this from um, actually RuPaul's Drag Race because he says you have to talk to your inner saboteur. Um, and I call that, I, I, I call that talking to my inner imposter because we're kind of operating in these systems that weren't really built for us. And so I often have to kind of catch myself kind of metacognitively. And so like, yes, that is my uh, imposter talking. And okay, I can spend a little bit of time freaking out about it, um, beating myself down, but then I have to get over it and put that imposter aside and start you know, doing what I came here to do. 